0: Welcome, thanks for being with us. Uh, My name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here at West Hills. As you can tell, I'm feeling under the weather today, so I'll try and keep my coughing into the microphone uh, to a a minimum, and I'll uh, let that be my apology for not shaking hands with with you this morning and giving you hugs like I normally like to, but um, if you are visiting with us especially, we want to say thank you. We're especially joy-filled to have you with us um, this morning. Well, but this morning is our um, fourth Sunday, last Sunday of Advent, uh, the four weeks in the church calendar leading up to Christmas, and we're studying the theme of joy together. We've covered hope and peace, and now we turn our attention to joy. I think it's important, uh, perhaps more so with joy than with any of the other topics, to try and define the term up front. What do we mean when we say that Advent tis the season for joy? Dictionary.com defines joy as the emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. But immediately from a Christian perspective, we find problems with such a definition. If joy is necessarily uh, caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying, then how do we make sense of the Bible's description of believers as those who rejoice in our sufferings? And it's that paradox, rejoicing and suffering, that has driven many Christians to attempt to differentiate then between joy and happiness. Michael Hoodman says, it's common today to hear believers speak of a difference between joy and happiness. The teaching usually makes the following points. Number one, happiness is a feeling, but joy is not. It's more of a state of being. Happiness is fleeting, but joy is everlasting. Number two, thirdly, happiness Perhaps depends on circumstances or other people, but joy is a gift from God. Or number four, happiness is worldly, but joy is divine. But I want to ask this morning, is, is any of that really true? Are any of those four differenti, uh, differentiations really warranted biblically? Number one, is it true that happiness is a feeling, but joy is not? In 1 Thessalonians three nine, Paul tells us, that uh, he describes all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. So joy certainly can be a feeling biblically. Number two, could it be then that happiness is fleeting, but joy is everlasting? Once again, that distinction uh, falls apart. In Psalm sixteen nine, David writes, "My heart is happy, and my whole being rejoices." Uh, My flesh also dwells secure. So David uses poetic parallelism here to draw a comparison, not a contrast between happiness and joy, and implies that both can be secure if our joy and our happiness are in the right place. Number three, does happiness depend on circumstances uh, or other people while joy is a gift from God? Actually, We see lots of of occasions in Scripture where joy is specifically connected to a particular circumstance. Deuteronomy 26.11 exhorts us, you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord has uh, done for you, given to you. We're called to recognize the good circumstances that the Lord has blessed us with, brought into our lives, and let our gratitude uh, fill us and lead us to joy. In Psalm 65, David expresses joy that his fields are abundant uh, with flocks, and, and he has such a bountiful harvest of grain. Jeremiah 33, 11 describes the joy of the bride and groom at their wedding. Proverbs 23, 24, and 25 describe parents rejoicing in a righteous child. Psalm 104 says, wine brings joy to the heart of man. Take that, you Baptists. <laughs> Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Take that, you prudes. (laughs) Hebrews 11.25 goes so far as to acknowledge the possibility of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so it turns out that joy can, in fact, and in at least some cases should be derived from a particular set of circumstances, which leaves us with the last possible distinction. Is it true that happiness is worldly, but joy is divine? Psalm 37.4 instructs us, to delight yourself in the Lord is the same root word as happiness. So it's possible to find our happiness as well as our joy, uh, not in the things of the world, but in the Lord. And so scripture really makes no clear distinction between joy and happiness. And I think we'd probably be better served this morning to stop trying uh, to, 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 to differentiate and start asking instead, how do we get them? How, how do we get both of them? True happiness, abiding joy. Where does it come from? To be joyful is simply to be happy. And at the end of the day, that's what we're all after, isn't it? We all just want to be happy, don't we? And in and of itself, the Bible says that is not a bad thing. On the contrary, Psalm 67.4 invites us, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Our desire for happiness is in fact put there by God. It's God's desire for us as well, but it's all about where we look for and find our happiness. The book of Ecclesiastes is basically King Solomon's testimony of looking for joy in all the wrong places. He writes in chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart, had to cheer my body with wine and folly. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted uh, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I had great possessions, herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delight of sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, don't forget, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. Because wine alone will never make you happy. Pleasure by itself, divorced from God, will Only ever be fleeting. Vanity, the Hebrew word for vanity, means vapor. It lasts but a moment. Work, no matter how meaning-filled. Possessions, no matter how grandiose. Riches, no matter how excessive. Even wisdom, remember Solomon was the wisest man in history. That was his one wish that he asked for directly and got granted by God in 2 Chronicles 1. But even wisdom won't ultimately satisfy us. Only one thing can, friends. Only one person can. And if you've joined us the past two weeks now or really ever at West Hills, this morning's big picture takeaway should come as no surprise to you. We have joy in Christ. We have joy in Christ alone true joy in him. Jesus alone can fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts. Jesus says, if you drink from any other well, you'll be thirsty again. Only the water that I give you can truly quench your thirst for joy. He says, I came for this very reason. John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly, a life of joy. That's what God wants for you. That's why he came. And just as we've recognized these past two weeks with hope and peace, we will miss the point entirely if we don't realize that the God of the Bible is not some detached, emotionless, hopelessly transcendent, otherworldly being who takes no concern at all in you uh, unless it's to make sure that you're not having any fun. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible who Jesus reveals to us is a loving, heavenly Father who cares enough to number the hairs on your head and whose desire is to fill you, Romans 15, 13, with all joy, with true joy, with perfect joy, God's joy in you. In fact, he will settle for nothing less. God will not be content in his perfect purpose for your life until he has filled you completely, with his perfect joy. Why? Because as as John Piper famously said, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. God is all about his own glory. God is jealous for his own glory. And if God is truly glorified most in you when you are most satisfied in him, then God is compelled to want nothing less than perfect joy for you. But if it's truly perfect joy, then it's got to be joy from God and joy found in God. Joy deriving from God that finds its ultimate fulfillment in God. And so let's take each of those two in turn. And by the way, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to even get to Philippians until the last like 10 minutes of this sermon. So if you want to take notes, feel free to just scatter them throughout your bulletin however you need to. First, the joy that God wants for us is joy from God. It's his joy. It's supernatural joy. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 16.11 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus echoed this when he told his disciples, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We could paraphrase what Jesus said last week in John chapter 14 about peace and just substitute the word joy in there. Joy, I leave you. My joy I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give. Let not your hearts be saddened or downcast. Because if it's Jesus' joy, then it's fullness of joy. Again, Piper writes, Jesus Christ is the happiest being in the universe. His gladness is greater than all the angelic gladness of heaven. He mirrors perfectly the infinite, holy, indomitable mirth of his Father. Indeed, Hebrews 1, 8, and 9 declares that Jesus' joy surpassed all his companions, the rest of humanity. It says, of the Son, he says, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is... Jesus got criticized for this. The gloomy scribes and Pharisees accused him of being too joyful. Luke 7, 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, you have too much fun. You got too many friends. Folks, Jesus knew how to party. You know that? My question this morning for us is, do we? Do we? Let's, let's just pause for a second. When your non-Christian friends hear the word church, do they envision a mind-numbing, uh, monotonous, never-ending snooze fest? Or do they picture a party, a joy-filled celebration, our worship? If we are doing church right, if God's Spirit is in it at all, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, Right, We could go on. We shouldn't have to beg people to join us on Christmas Eve or any other time of the year for that matter because church ought to be one of the highlights of our week. The joy that we get from gathering with saints to worship the Lord should overflow out of our hearts and be evident for all to see. It ought to be contagious and it ought to be attractive to a world that is desperately searching in vain elsewhere for joy. Real, lasting joy. If God is the source of all joy, and if Jesus was truly Emmanuel, God with us, then he was a perfect embodiment of joy. Joy touched every part of what Jesus said and did in his bodily life, even his suffering. Jesus experienced plenty of that. Isaiah 53.3 describes him as a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. Just before heading to the cross, Jesus confessed, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. But as Randy Alcorn notes, sorrow and happiness can and do exist together, coexist. Jesus knew, as we too can know, that the basis for our sorrow is temporary, while the basis of our gladness is permanent. Sorrow lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Proverbs 14, 13 puts it this way, even in laughter, the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. The end, the telos, the fulfillment of joy may in fact be grief. What a beautiful proverb. What a beautiful promise for all whose hearts ache. You can still have joy even in your grief. Jesus was the example par excellence of this. What greater grief could there be than for the Son of God to experience total separation from God the Father as he he took on and bore the weight of all our sin and our shame in his body on the cross. And yet we hear in Hebrews 12, even on the cross, the very foundation of our faith, he did it all for joy. Hebrews 12.2, let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, that's the kind of joy we want. That's the kind of joy we want. Jesus is joy, joy from God. And secondly, we need joy in God, joy in Christ. If anything characterized Jesus' coming into the world, it was joy. Literally every character of the nativity story, other than King Herod, who admittedly tried to kill him. But all the rest are described as finding their joy in the coming of the Lord before Jesus is even born. When pregnant Mary visited pregnant Elizabeth, we hear that John the Baptist leapt for joy in Elizabeth's belly at Jesus' fetal presence. Mary herself exclaims, my my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Of the magi we hear, when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. And to the shepherds, the angel announces, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Zechariah, Simeon, Anna, they're all depicted as experiencing overwhelming joy in the Lord at the birth of the Savior. E. Stanley Jones observed, the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to, but in delight, look what has come into the world. Is that true of us today, Christians? Does that describe your Facebook posts? Are they gloom and doom? If they're focused on what the world has come to, they will be. Or do you fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who has come into the world to rescue you from hopelessness, from joylessness, is your joy found in him? Alcorn writes, joy, exaltation, and happiness are proper responses to Jesus and the gospel, which tells us that in Christ we are created by God, loved by him, redeemed, and dwelt with and empowered by his Holy Spirit and assured of an eternally happy and abundant life in his presence. What happiness is ours? That's why a gospel not characterized by overwhelming gladness isn't the gospel. Friends, Christians of all people should be known as a joyful, happy people. And it's because of that good news that the Bible can command us. See, joy is not just a suggestion for God's people. It's a command. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. And like we saw last week with peace, and Jesus' command to be anxious in nothing. If left on our own, Jesus expecting us not to worry, not to stress, not to fear, to be joyful always, rejoice always, these things would amount to emotional abuse if left on our own. We can't do that. I can't muster that up on my own. The best that I can hope for in tough times, my first Christmas away from my family, after the November we just had, a failed adoption and a miscarriage. And oh, by the way, here's a cold on top of it. <clears throat> the very best I can hope for, from devoid of joy and peace from Jesus, his joy, his peace from the Spirit, is the world's superficial fake it till you make it approach. It's Nat King Cole's smile though your heart is aching, smile though it's all breaking, light up your face with gladness, hide every trace of sadness, although a tear may be ever so near, that's the time you must keep on trying. Friends, Jesus doesn't just shout down from heaven, keep on trying harder. He entered into the thick of it to make it actually possible for us, to bring us his joy. Praise God, friends, he has not left us on our own to keep trying harder. Jesus invites us. He says in John 16, ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. He says, just ask. You don't have because you don't ask. Ask. I desire, earnestly desire to fill you with all my joy. The fruit of my spirit in you Ask and you will receive. What a promise. His is a joy that transcends circumstances. It empowers us to rejoice and be very glad, even when others revile you and persecute you, because you know your reward is in heaven. Matthew 5. It's a joy that enables us to consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1. That's the kind of joy that Jesus left for his disciples who after getting arrested and beaten and warned never to speak of him ever again, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. That's the kind of joy that the Philippian jailer experienced who despite facing the imminent prospect of losing not only his job, but probably his life for letting Paul and Silas escape from prison. In Acts chapter 16, we hear he was filled with joy. Why? Because he had come to believe in God. He came to know Jesus, he and his whole family. And he knew that and you've got Jesus who cares, who can stand against you. What's the worst that the world can throw at you? It's the kind of joy that moved the Apostle Paul to say, I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6. How do we get that kind of joy? Friends, you only get the kind of joy that transcends the circumstances of this world if it's a joy that's not ultimately rooted in this world. As long as your joy is tied, ultimately tied, doesn't mean we can't still find temporal joy in a righteous child, a glass of wine, uh, the wife of your youth. But if your joy is ultimately tied to the things of this world, it will always be fleeting at best because 1 John 2.17, this world is passing away with its desires. But if your joy is in Christ, Colossians 1.5, then your hope is laid up in heaven, which makes it eternal, makes it untouchable, unshakable joy. Peter provides probably the best articulation of that kind of joy in all of Scripture in 1 Peter 1 when he says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. In this salvation, Peter says, this eternal hope awaiting you, your imperishable inheritance, that's why you can rejoice no matter what this world throws at you, because your hope lies ultimately not in this world, but in the world to come. And you know that the greatest joy of all is a relationship with God the Father that has already been made possible for you by God the Son, Jesus. And in his salvation you can now rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, that is true joy. That is biblical joy. The eternal salvation of our souls purchased by the precious blood of Jesus in our place on the cross. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Heaven as an inheritance. What greater joy could we possibly hope for, dream of, pray for, wait for? But as if all of that weren't enough, I want to show you in our last 10 or 15 minutes here together, how that otherworldly joy can actually come and begin to touch every part of our this worldly experience. And for that, we're going to turn to the book of Philippians. Uh, you can't talk about uh, biblical joy without eventually heading for Philippians. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, I'll have the excerpts, various excerpts we're going to examine, pull down out on the screen for you. But Philippians is unanimously considered Paul's happiest letter in the New Testament. He explicitly uses the words joy, rejoice, 14 times in just four chapters. That's more than any other epistle in the New Testament. And that's despite the fact that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi from a prison cell, a Roman prison. So just keep that in mind for context here as you listen to Paul. But as I began to study these references to joy throughout Philippians, I began to see not only the overarching theme that we have joy in Christ emerge, but I also started to identify Paul as describing our joy in Christ in relation to three distinct areas of life. And it just so happens that these are the same three categories that are the, uh, the three core Uh, Pursuits that drive us here as a church here at West Hills. And so I want to take this opportunity uh, to remind us of why we're here, of why we do this thing that we call church together at West Hills. Our mission statement at West Hills. We are a gospel-centered church who glorify God by living an authentic Christian community with one another, growing in spiritual maturity as disciples of Jesus, and serving the world missionally with the love of Christ. Now that is a way too-wordy way of saying that at the end of the day, we as a church just want to glorify God because God is all about his own glory, like we said, and so we too want to be all about God's glory. But we recognize as we begin to read Scripture, all throughout Scripture, God's being most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him means that we give special attention to three Distinct dimensions of the Christian life. They're the same three emphases that every gospel-centered church out there you will find majors on. We, We use different words for it, but every church mission statement basically boils down to these three things. Discipleship, community, and missions. Because God is glorified in us as we, number one, grow vertically, discipleship in our relationship with him, Number two, we grow internally in relation to his people, the church, fellow believers. And number three, as we grow outwardly in our relationship to the lost world that God loves and cares for and desires to save. And and because our mission statement is too long, and because I'd like to help us actually uh, begin to, to commit to memory and just internalize And remember why we're here, what we're all about. What we're supposed to be all about, not only collectively as a church, but as individual believers, what what should characterize our lives as believers. I came up uh, with some synonyms for for those three pursuits um, that that form a catchy acronym for West Hills Church that I want to try out with you today. So um, see how this sits with you. Worship, home, and calling. Worship describes our vertical relationship with God. We will maximize our joy when our lives are radically characterized by assigning God worth, giving him the glory that he deserves. Number two, community has kind of become a a popular Christian buzzword these days, but I think home is such a more strong, powerful word a way of expressing that deep longing in all of our hearts to be truly known and yet truly accepted and cared for unconditionally. What is home if not a place where you can be yourself, right? Be yourself and know that you are cared for without any fear of rejection. That's what authentic Christian community with one another should mean. That's what West Hills should be all about. Worship, Home, and lastly, calling. Calling describes the the commission that Jesus has left us with, our marching orders from our Lord, the family business that He's left us in charge of, chasing after until He returns or takes us home, serving the world missionally with the love of Christ. That's our calling. And so we want to spend our last few minutes here in Philippians together examining what it means to find our joy in our worship of Christ, to experience joy in our sense of home that we now have through Christ, and the joy that now accompanies our calling from Christ. First of all, we have joy in our worship of Christ. Paul writes, Again, from his prison cell in chapter 1, verses 18 through 24, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul says, if God in his sovereignty uh, orchestrates my physical deliverance from prison, Then I'll go on continuing to live for Christ and serving Him, worshiping Him, glorifying Him with everything I've got, planning churches and growing them up in God's love. But if God decides to take me home to heaven, that's even better. That's even better because I know I've already been spiritually delivered from my sin to an imperishable inheritance awaiting me in heaven. So I no longer fear death. Talk about hope, talk about joy. You don't have to fear death. That's the joy that we have in Christ. Paul says, I welcome it. To die is gain. It's to be with the Lord. But Paul indicates later in the same chapter that God has given him an assurance of his physical deliverance. God has made it clear through the Holy Spirit. Paul, it's not your time yet. I'm going to deliver you from prison Chapter 1, verse 25, Paul says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress in joy in the faith. Paul's referring here to the joy of sanctification, their progress in the faith. They're growing in spiritual maturity as disciples of Christ, like our mission statement says. That's, that's a joy that God gives us, the, the ability, the desire to grow in our knowledge and love and relationship with him to grow in our faith is joy he exhorts them this church in philippi later in chapter 3 verse 1 he says my brothers rejoice in the lord and in the context of chapter 3 the church has begun to be led astray by false teachers the so-called circumcision party who has crept in and begun convincing these immature believers to rejoice in their own spiritual pedigrees and their own ability to keep the law rather than in Christ alone. But Paul responds to the circumcision party this way. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Friends, that is joy, and that is worship, joy-filled worship. I heard a friend say it this way once. He said, I want to live my life in such a way that if I get to the end and I was wrong about Jesus, no part of my life would make any sense. I want to give my life away to rejoicing in the Lord alone from a worldly perspective. It doesn't make sense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if this world is all that there is, then we Christians above all people are to be pitied. But if there really is a world to come, then we can rejoice because our hope is seated in heaven with Christ. We have eternal joy. We have joy that goes beyond the grave. So Paul concludes his exhortation to worship with his climatic words. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this morning, If everything else in your life falls apart, if it fell apart tomorrow, if everything else in this world fails you, as it eventually one day will, Jesus said it's it's all fading away. The world is passing away. Do you know that your joy is unshakable, untouchable, because it's in heaven with Christ? Is that where your joy is? Number two, we have joy in our home through Christ, the home, the new family of faith that Jesus has adopted us into. Paul describes for us the great joy that comes from being a member of the household of God, the church. Paul opens his letter with these words in chapter one. He says, "'I thank my God in all my remembrance of you "'always in every prayer of mine "'for you all making my prayer with joy.'" Because of your partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Friends, those aren't the words of a shiny, polished, mega church preacher. That's the affection, the heart of a pastor. That is a shepherd's heart for his flock, a flock who knows him and who he knows. He says, I hold you in my heart with all affection. That's the kind of church community you want to be a part of, to be truly known and truly loved. That's the kind of church family we we hope and pray that you'll find here at West Hills if you're visiting. I know so many of us have. That's why we're here. How is it possible? How is it possible for us to experience that kind of true uh, community, and a sense of home in this world. Paul says again, it's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's only possible to the extent that we pursue the unity of the Spirit. He says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. See, it's hard enough to experience God's perfect hope and peace and joy in your own life, individually, but to experience it in community, with others. I mean every fallen sinner that you add to the mix that you add to your membership roster as a church, just ups the probability of this joy-filled, loving community we share falling apart. And so Paul exhorts them, the only way this works is if you have one mind, one love, one common focus. Fix your eyes on Jesus collectively, together. He is the glue that bound this community this home, this spiritual home, this spiritual family together in the first place. He's the glue and he's got to be the glue that keeps you together in joy and in unity. And just listen to the feeling of home that Paul experiences with this beloved church in Philippi. He says in chapter 4 verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved, he calls them. You I don't know if we have those slides or not. Okay. Uh, we had some internet issues this morning. Sorry. So just have to go read Philippians for yourself this week. It's like God use it your extra study or technical difficulties to increase your joy. But Paul says, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. So let me leave you with with this question in this category, friends. Beloved friends, do you feel at home when you come to church? Does this feel like home to you? The Apostle Peter talks about how believers are exiles and strangers in this world because we know our true home is in heaven with Christ. But if that's true, then the closest thing we can come to a home away from home in this life is the church, because the church is God's appointed embassy in this foreign land. It's like an outpost, an embassy. It's like we're wandering around in a foreign country six days a week, barely understanding the language, hopefully not assimilating into the culture around us, rather being countercultural in the world, but not of the world. But one day a week, we get to come together and gather together with fellow exiles who speak our native tongue and feel at home. We feel at home. That should bring us joy. The church is God's gift to us in this world while we wait to go home for good. It brings us joy. I just speak from my own personal uh, heart and perspective here. This is, this, this is the highlight of the week for me, and not just because I get a platform to talk a lot and you have to listen. I love being with you all because I love you all, and because you are like family. This is home for me. Again, we'd love for this to be like home for you. West Hills is is such a beautiful, loving church family in that regard. And lastly, number three, we have joy in our calling from Christ. Joy in our calling from Christ. Paul explains, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. What then? only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul basically says, share the gospel for bad motives or good motives. I'm just happy that people are hearing the good news. Paul exhorts them in chapter two, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He has a whole section in chapter two about Epaphroditus, brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, minister, in Paul's need that the church of Philippi, this missionary, the church of Philippi has commissioned and sent to Paul to aid him in his evangelistic calling. And then Paul ends in chapter four by saying, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. And in context here, Paul's basically writing Philippians as like a support letter, as as a thank you letter, not to request support, but just to thank them for their support. Not just in word only, Not just like, you know, we'll pray for you, but tangible, practical, financial. They put their money where their mouth is, practical action. Paul's saying, thank you for reviving your your concern for me. It's a joy. I rejoiced in the Lord. And so my concluding question for us, again, friends, in this category of calling is this. Do we find the same kind of joy that Paul had in our calling from Christ. Is it give us joy to give our lives away to the end of seeing Jesus be made famous in all the earth? I'm not asking that to inspire guilt, but hopefully to motivate joy. And I was just thinking about it this morning as we were singing, listening to the kids singing, and we're singing together. Our God saves. Our God saves there is hope in his name. That is good news. Friends, that, that's, that brings us such joy. If you're here in this room, it's probably because that brings you joy. That fires you up. It's good news, but it's only good news if you've heard it. The world needs to hear. They need to know about Jesus. And we get to be the ones to do it. We get to be the ones, not have to be. We get to be. It's a joy. We get to be the ones to go tell it on the mountain. Shout it from the rooftops with joy in our hearts. Father, may the world see the joy, your joy, overflowing in our hearts and desire to drink for themselves from the only water that will never leave them thirsty again. Let's pray.